0: The following audio is from Fathom Church in downtown Littleton, Colorado. More information about Fathom can be found at fathomchurch.org. If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, go ahead and grab them and open them up to James chapter 1. Uh, You can open a phone or a tablet to James 1. You can open a hardback black Bible under every single chair. We've got those. Uh, James 1 is on page 1011 in that Bible. But James 1 is where we're going to be. We're uh, in week two of our James sermon series. We will be walking through this entire book uh, through our fall and uh, getting us to Christmas. So James chapter 1 is where we're going to be. Last week, uh, we got to start by preaching one verse out of James chapter one. We just did kind of the background and the history and, and how do we get to the author and, and the audience and this letter. It's, we, we worked through all of that stuff. And let me just give you a quick recap. We found out that the author was James, right? That was one of the jokes, who wrote the book? James. If you say Paul, I'm out, right? Like that's, that's silly, but James, which James? Well, we, we came to the conclusion that it's James, the brother of Jesus. Jesus had siblings. Mary and Joseph had more kids, okay? And so uh, James was the brother of Jesus, and that through James' life, he was actually an unbelieving skeptic until Jesus revealed himself to him until a resurrected Jesus reveals himself to his brother. And we said that the resurrection changes everything. It changes everything, even believing that a member of your family is divine. It's the only way actually that you would believe that somebody that you live with is God, okay? is if the resurrection is true. So, so James, the brother of Jesus, he is the senior pastor, if we wanna use that language, the senior pastor over the church in Jerusalem, this brand new movement of Christians, okay? Uh, but very soon after the, the new church begins, after Jesus ascends to heaven and the apostles begin to start the church movement, very quickly after that, heavy persecution breaks out. Heavy persecution against these new Christians, against the way is what they were called at that point. And all of those Christians are scattered. So they don't stay in Jerusalem. They are scattered due to persecution all around the ancient Near East. And and that's who James is writing to. He's writing to these Christians who have been dispersed all around the ancient Near East. He's writing, by the way, to believers. He's not writing to unbelievers, He's writing to the saints who have been scattered. And so so James is assuming that they all believe, that they all have at least an entry-level kind of justification by faith. They have been saved. But one of the main themes that we're going to see through the book of James is this. What, What does genuine faith look like? Like you might say that you have faith, but, but how do you know that it's real? How do you know that it's genuine? What does it look like? Because the Christians that he's writing to are already, they're, they're already saved, but they're relatively new to this whole thing right? They're all pretty much new. Like in most churches today, there's, there's people who are newer in their faith. And then there's people who've been around church their whole lives. There's maybe more mature believers. And, and so there's normally a mix in churches, but you'd have to imagine that this, this, everybody in this church is brand new. Ain't nobody in that church saying, I've been raised in this church because it just started. Right? there was no church before this. and so they're all pretty new in their faith. So James is writing to, to who he believes are saved Christians, but to help them understand what does it mean to mature? What does it mean to, to have genuine faith in Christ? And so I, I, I just we, we understand this. In our, in our world, in our church culture, we get this. Lots of people today will say, I'm a Christian. And lots of people today will say, I, "I I got saved. I'm saved. I'm a Christian. I'm born again." But how do you know if it's genuine? And you can say whatever you want. How do you know? So when I got saved back in high school, I told, I've told you this, I, I got saved when I was 16. Um, I, I got saved and I started hanging out with a, a crew of friends from this youth group and this Young Life Club that I started going to. So I, I'm 16, I just get saved and I start building a, a crew of Christian friends around me. And this is a group of maybe five or six of us that we ran together for the last couple of years of high school. And we all had conversion experiences, Okay, we all were kind of going on mission trips together and growing in our faith and kind of doing Bible studies. And and, and it seemed like like we were into this Jesus thing. Um, But interestingly enough, as I followed some of those friends after high school, many in that crew, to my knowledge, just kind of stopped following Jesus. Like to my knowledge, they're no longer actively following Christ. And they would probably still check the Christian box like they would check that in their religious preference profile, uh, but for all intents and purposes, they're not doing anything that Christians do. Okay, um, uh, now I talked to one of those guys. Uh, just sent him a message uh, once, and I asked him, "Bro, why aren't you following the Lord anymore?" Just you know, we were we were tight. We were on fire for Jesus. Like, what happened? And he knows that now I'm a pastor. And so, you know, that's a loaded question coming from a pastor. Um, And he sees the stuff that I post on social media. So he kind of knows where I'm at. And so this is what he said to me. He said, Chris, aren't you a Calvinist now? And I'm like, well, I don't have a Um, uh, t-shirt. Right? Like, I I, I mean, I don't really. uh, But yeah, I fall in that camp. I fall in that camp. And he's like, okay. All right. So that means that you believe in once saved, always saved, doesn't it? And I'm like, uh, well, it's a little more complicated than that, all right? It's a little more, like, first rule of thumb, don't try and break down an entire theological system into a tweet, okay? It's probably going to be incorrect. But, so I was, I was like, yeah, uh, I guess, I, I mean, I believe that once Jesus saves you, he will bring that salvation to completion. So, sort of, yeah, once saved, always saved, maybe. Um, and so this is what his response to me was. He says, okay, if that's true, then, then that means that my salvation at age 13 still holds. Even if I don't have a belief in God right now, like once saved, always saved, right? Right? That means I can just kind of keep on living the way that I'm living. And if if God exists and Jesus is the only way, then I'm covered, then I'm good. like, what do you say to that? I mean, he had prayed to ask Jesus into his heart. I was there. And And all indications back in high school was that he was very sincere with that faith at that time. The question is, is that genuine faith? Is that genuine faith? I think most of us would say, well, I don't know, but that doesn't sit right with me. So what does genuine faith look like? What does genuine faith look like? As believers who profess faith in Christ, we need to ask ourselves that. We need to ask ourselves: is the faith that we claim to have a genuine faith? See, when when we become believers, it takes time for our lives and for our actions to kind of start to match up with what we say we believe. But 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 the question is: do you have any desire to progress in your faith? Like, did you have have you made any steps forward? since the day you professed faith in Christ. I'm assuming because you're here that you have, but maybe you haven't. James isn't trying to condemn people. Rather, he's just trying to encourage them to to dig deeper, to say, hey, the faith that you say you have, like there's more to be had. There's, There's depths to mine, let's go. So so I say all that to kind of set us up. That's what we're gonna start to see in the, the epistle of James here, okay? So here we go, James chapter one. We did verse one last week. Let's jump down to verse two. So follow along with me in your text. James says this, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. All right, let's pause there. As we talk about uh, what genuine faith looks like, I wanna make some points from our text. And, And so here's the three points I'm gonna make. I'll give you the first one right now. The first point is this, genuine faith perseveres in trials. If you've got genuine faith, It perseveres in trials. This is the first thing that James says to these relatively new believers who have been dispersed in the dispersion is what he says. The first thing he says is count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds. That's his first message to them. And the first word I wanna focus in on is the word when. Count it all joy when you meet trials. Just notice it's not if, right? It's not, you might face trials. It's, it's when you face trials. Uh, one theologian I read this week as I studied for this, in response to the question of what the greatest defect of American Christianity was, his response was that we have an inadequate view of suffering. An inadequate view of suffering. You see, many people that I meet with who maybe were raised in the church have have, have been taught even explicitly that if they really love and follow Jesus, that they won't face trials in their lives. I've I've met people who've been explicitly taught that or I've met plenty of people who have been implicitly, like they have implicitly believed the very same thing by not having a robust theology of suffering taught to them. And that can be just as damaging. The church has made some mistakes in not adequately preparing her people for the trials that will come, that will come. But if we want to survive in that day of trial, we must have a good theology of suffering. We must have a good theology of suffering. Trials should be, hear me, your expectation as a follower of Christ. It's not if, it's when when many people who have claimed to have faith show that their faith was not genuine when trials arise. Okay, you've heard the message. I don't know if you've heard this message. It's kind of like the evangelical message. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. You heard that? God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Let me tell you, totally true. God does love you. And he does have a wonderful plan for your life but many immature christians are taken by surprise when god's wonderful plan for their life includes suffering. and we shouldn't be caught off guard by this. cuz have you been there? I mean, does do I need to take a raise hands here? Anybody since they became a christian suffered zero? Anybody? Nobody. If you're online and you're raising your hand, I don't believe you. You're a liar. That's a sin, okay? But uh, listen, J- J- James, James says that in those moments, those moments when trials arise, we're to count it all joy. That's what he says. Count it all joy or consider it all joy, depending on your translation. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean to count it all joy? How is it possible like, does it mean we're just supposed to be happy and clappy and grinning and I'm blessed even when our world is falling apart? Is that what that means? Many of us, uh, many of you know that my wife, Marcy, um, has had ongoing health issues, okay? Um, and, and so for years, she's struggled and suffered with kind of undiagnosed health stuff. And so we've been to tons of doctors, tons of doctors. Um, and my experience with my wife is is that we've got a problem when we show up to a doctor because Marcy is just kind of unbelievably sweet and kind, which is not a problem in most of life, all right? It's a great trait, but sometimes it plays against her. So a couple months ago, she had an appendicitis and, and ended up having to have a surgery to remove her appendix. And literally, she could not stand up straight from the pain in her abdomen, I had to drive her to the hospital. She could not stand up straight. But as soon as she gets into the ER and meets the receptionist, the receptionist's like, hey, are you okay? She's like, oh, I'm great. I'm great. I'm like, you cannot stand. Not Everything is not okay at this moment, all right? And I'm like, babe, work the system, right? Like milk it, get you a better room with this pain. If I'm, if I'm sick, like with a sniffle, Right, if I'm if I'm sick and I have to go see the doctor, I mean it's like a Broadway caliber show, right? I'm like retching and dry heaving, trying to get the best care possible. Like that's you should you should pretend you are dying when you're sick and you go to the doctor. Uh, This text isn't saying. Listen, it's not saying that you're just happy and cheerful when things are awful. It's not like you're hunched over and you're like I'm good. That's not what's going on here. No, when you're suffering. It's unbelievably hard. It's unbelievably difficult. It's unbelievably painful. And you're to be authentic in that. So so then how are we to be joyful in the midst of those trials? Well, James' answer is is for us to, to broaden our scope of view. He says that you should know, you should consider, you should count the fact that God is up to something in those trials. There's a purpose in this pain. See, James is arguing that trials produce something. They produce something. So if you have superficial faith, trials produce maybe anger towards God, right? They, they, they might produce resentment towards God. They might even produce abandonment of God altogether. But if you have genuine faith, James says that your trials will produce, the word he uses is steadfastness, that trials produce steadfastness. And if you consider that, then you can count that up as as joy in the midst of trials. You can actually find joy in suffering if you understand the purpose of that Pain. Now, what is steadfastness? That's a word we don't use a lot. It's kind of bible So what does that mean? What is James talking about when he says it will produce steadfastness? Well, uh, the way that James is using this, he's talking about an active and intentional endurance rather than resignation. Steadfastness is an active and intensive, intentional endurance during a trial rather than a throwing up of our hands and a resignation. Okay, It's, it's a determined act of the will. I, I'm going to get through whatever trial faces me because I can fix my eyes on Christ. That's steadfastness. And if we could take like these verses and kind of make them into an equation, it would go something like this. You start with faith, faith, and then you add on to that trials as kind of a test of that faith. Then, then that equals, it produces steadfastness. And then he says, if you let steadfastness have its full effect, you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now, when he says that, he's not talking like perfect as in sinless. He's not saying complete as in, I don't sin. I don't desire to sin anymore. We don't struggle anymore. No, what he's saying when when he says perfect and complete, lacking nothing, he's talking about like maturity. He's talking about like a, a spiritual solidness, a maturity. The process is faith that's tested in trials that produces steadfastness that leads to a spiritual maturity evidencing that your faith is genuine. So genuine faith perseveres in trials. That's the first thing. But then James goes on, he moves on, and he's trying to encourage, again, he's trying to encourage these young believers to persevere in trials. And he says something interesting. Look at verse five. He says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting and withers the grass, its flower falls, and its beauty perishes, so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Now there's a lot going on there, and I promise I'll, I'll explain how it all fits together, okay? But this next section is so important, okay? Because you have to follow the logical train of thought that James is doing here. James just said. Genuine faith will persevere under trials, okay? And that will produce steadfastness that will lead you to maturity. And then he says, but if you lack wisdom, he's like, hey, is anybody in here lack wisdom? I mean, it's kind of like he's saying, you will be mature, perfect, lacking nothing. You will be mature, but anybody not feeling like they're mature? Anybody feel like I'm missing something here? So this is the next point genuine faith grows in dependence it grows in dependence you don't become more independent as you mature in your faith you become more dependent as you grow in your faith you become more dependent on god so so the, again the logical framework here if you persevere in trials you're going to grow into maturity but if in that process you lack wisdom like you haven't reached all that maturity that you're hoping for yet, you ask God for help. You depend on him. You lean on him. You ask him for help. See, sometimes we think that maturity means you don't need to ask for help anymore. Sometimes we think that maturity means I've got this. It's like being self-sufficient, but in a spiritual light, that is not true at all. At all. It is assumed that you will need wisdom on this journey. And I love that in verse five, um, that when asked, it says, God will give wisdom. Like if you ask, he's given it. It's promise. It says he never refuses the request for wisdom. Well, you ask, why don't we see a whole lot more wise Christians walking around then? Because I'm looking around me and I'm like, you know, where's all the wisdom that we're supposed to have from God? Well, Well, let me offer this. I think when trials come upon us, our guttural instinct is not to ask for wisdom. I think when suffering and trials show up in our lives, we ask for something else. You know what I ask for when I'm in a tough place? God, get me out of this tough place. I don't ask for wisdom. I ask for, God, get me out of this or show me what I need to do to get out of this, but get me out but you see, that's not asking for wisdom. It's actually asking for knowledge or a miracle. And those are not things that you shouldn't ask for, right? But, but wisdom biblically is different than knowledge. It is. Okay, so when we think of wisdom biblically, we like to point to Solomon, right? Solomon is the, the the man who was kind of known as the wisest in the Old Testament. He's known for his wisdom. He asks God for wisdom, not for power, not for, you know, wealth. Uh, he asks for wisdom, but look with me. I'll put it on the screen. First Kings 3.9, this is what it actually says that he asks for. This is Solomon asking God. He says, give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people that I may discern between good and evil for who is able to govern this, this your great people. See, see, that's a different request than God just tell me what I need to do or God just fix this for me. He's saying, no, God, give me a discerning mind. Give me a mind that I might understand that I might govern these People, genuine faith it grows us independence, y'all. And so, to illustrate this, okay, uh, we we like to talk as Christians. We like to talk about trials and sufferings as storms, right? You're, you use that, oh man. I'm just going through a storm. It's just like the winds and the way. It's just I'm in a storm right now, right? Because when suffering comes, when the trials are upon us, it feels like it feels like we're kind of being wrecked by a storm in our life. And I don't know about you. But my experience and and the testimony that I find in the scriptures is that God's way most often isn't to save me from the storm, but rather to deliver me through the storm. Like that seems to be God's mode, right? This is the difference between praying for God to get us out of the storm and and praying for God to give us wisdom to survive the storm. These are differences, okay? Okay. Because God's way most often isn't just like the helicopter dad who's, you know, kind of flying in, lowering in, grabs you and pulls you out of that storm. That's just not how it most often works, but rather he doesn't save us from it. He delivers us through the storm. Most often, okay? Okay. My experience with Jesus thus far is that like when I'm in the middle of a storm, when life is just a mess around me, whether it's a mess that I have created for myself or a mess that's been superimposed upon me, either way, when that storm is raging and I yell, Father, help me, you know, save me from this storm. It's almost like my my heavenly father at that moment, more often than not, just takes me by the hand and he doesn't lift me out of that storm and miraculously things are better, but rather he guides me through it. Sometimes he has to drag me through that storm. And I'm like, I can't can't breathe. The winds, I can't breathe. It feels like I'm dying here. And he's like, yeah, yeah, I know. I know it's part of it. And I I can't, I mean, I've had these prayers. I don't know if you've had these prayers where I'm like, God, why don't you just save me from this? Why don't you just get me from uh, out, from under this suffering? And it's almost like I hear from him, no. No, but I will deliver you through it. See, we just saw that, that in those trials and suffering, God is producing maturity in us. So would it be good for him to deliver us straight out of those storms, to pull us right out of those storms if what comes on the other side of the storm is maturity? Is that actually the best for us? I mean, I don't know about you, but... But when has your faith matured the most? Is it when everything's going awesome? Is it when everything is smooth and coasting along? Or or is it when you're so desperate for him that if he doesn't show up, you're just, you're you're toast. Trials produce maturity because they grow us in dependence. So this is the challenge. I, I challenge you not to just ask for relief from your trials, but to start praying for wisdom. Start asking for wisdom in the midst of your trials. What if it's for your good? What if it's producing something in you? You can count that as joy, but don't just ask for relief. It's okay to ask for relief, but don't just ask for relief because God might be wanting to do something in you, grow something in you, birth something new in you through wisdom. And that's the way he most often walks through storms with us. We ask for wisdom and he grows us in dependence on him. Now, a couple other things in this little section, okay? If you notice in verse five, it says after after asking for wisdom, it says he generously gives to all without reproach. No reproach. That's great news. No reproach. If you ask for wisdom, he won't say, are you kidding me? You didn't even use the wisdom I gave you last time. He doesn't do that. You ask for wisdom humbly, depending on God, and he will genuinely give it to you, generously give you wisdom. I think that's really important. Now, you saw the whole double-minded thing. Did you see that? Remember when we were reading this? This double-minded thing is weird. Okay, follow me here. God says, okay, you're confused about this trial. Ask me for wisdom. Ask me for wisdom. I'll give it to you, but don't doubt. Because if you doubt... You're not getting anything from me because you're double-minded. So yeah, okay, what do we do with this? That sounds really the opposite of what you just said, God. So what is being said here? Well, let me explain. The double-minded man here is the man who's like, yeah, I follow God. Of course I follow God, but he's not gonna help me. This is not, like, I'm not even gonna ask him for it. You know what? I can take care of this myself. Yeah, I follow God, but I've got this. That's the double minded man, not even crying out to God for help. See, the double minded man is, is, is paying lip service to God, paying lip service to God, pretending to have it all together when he doesn't have it. Okay? It's, it's, it's a sign that you don't have genuine faith. This is, I'm fine. I'm fine. I've got this. My marriage is a train wreck but I've got this. My kids are just nightmares, but I've got this. My house is on fire over here, but don't worry. I've got this, okay? We're good. What's that over there? Oh, don't you, don't worry about that. Don't you even worry about that. It's under control. Man, wasn't Chris funny this morning. Man, I love that guy, right? Diverting, showing up every Sunday, but never acknowledging that there's something over here that's under attack, that's blowing up in your life. And that fake it till you make it thing won't work here. That's double-minded. I said it a few weeks ago, like the worst thing that you can do if, if you're not okay is to pretend that you're okay. It's the worst thing that you can do. See, Jesus is showing us that genuine faith grows in dependence. And then in verses 9 through 11, we found that little thing uh, about like the rich man and the poor man. And this is a theme that we'll see uh, in the the, the book of James. But really what's happening there is a flattening of the curve. It's kind of like flattening of the curve, as it were. Like everyone, he's saying everyone endures trials. Everyone, the rich and the poor. The rain's going to fall on both of them. Everybody endures trials. Everybody struggles. It doesn't matter if you're rich or poor. It doesn't matter if you're educated or uneducated. It doesn't matter if you're in a place of honor or a place of shame. Everyone will have seasons where the sky is clear and everything feels good. And we'll all have seasons when it storms. God is leading us into maturity and he's showing us our need for him. So genuine faith perseveres in trials Genuine faith grows independence. And then my final point for the morning is is actually found in verses 12 through 18. So let's finish this up. Verses 12 through 18. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Verse 16, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Point three this morning is this. Genuine faith fights temptation. It fights temptation. See, James starts this little section in verse 12 by reiterating God's goodness in those tests and trials. He says that in verse 12, but then he he turns to the opposite response. See, you can persevere and ask for wisdom and grow and mature in your faith, but there's another option. There's another option here. You see, how a Christian responds to trials will determine whether that suffering is ultimately a test to pass or a temptation to sin. Now, here's why I believe this. It's fascinating. But the the Greek word that's translated trial, count it all joy, uh, my my brothers and sisters, when you face trials, that Greek word for trial, it, it comes from the same root as the word that's translated temptation in verse 13. Trial, temptation, same Greek root for those words. What, what I think that means is that there is a way that sufferings can be trials that produce steadfastness in us. And then there's a way where those things can turn into temptations to sin. The same thing. And it's going to be a fight is what he's saying. You've got to fight that temptation because it will fully grown bring about death, death. It will fully grown show that your faith was not in fact genuine faith but inauthentic. If you're not careful, you're going to be tempted and drawn by your flesh to betray God's invitation to maturity through trial. And that's going to lead to death. So he tags this little section about Christian maturity with this little warning on the end. Trials are meant for your joy. They're meant for your maturity. They're meant for you to grow into genuine faith, but they can become temptations to sin to turn and to run rather than running to him. He's saying, you gotta fight against that. Now, this was a lot of text. I could have preached five sermons from that section if I had gone at the pace that I went last week, but I didn't wanna do James for two and a half years, okay? Um, So let me end with this because I think this whole section is about genuine faith and trials, genuine faith, and suffering. So let me end with this illustration. I use it all the time, but I think it's helpful when we talk about this stuff, okay? My daughter Harper is six. She's six years old. And she's at the point uh, in her life now where if I take her to the pediatrician, she knows what's coming. Right, she knows what's she 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 knows what's happening. When she was younger, we could take uh, uh Harper to to the pediatrician. Uh, our pediatrician's name is Dr. Kelly. We love Dr. Kelly, but 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 Harper loved going to see Dr. Kelly when she was little. Right, she we would play doctor at home. She was Dr. Kelly. Okay, she would give me checkups all the time. Best game ever. If you're a parent, you know this. The checkup is the best game because you lay on the floor and close your eyes. <laughs> You're not doing any, an exhausted parents, like, let's do a checkup, baby. Donk, right? Back down on the floor. I mean, can I get a witness? Does anybody else love this game? Okay, I get it, I get it. But, but, but at that point, when she was little, we'd seen enough episodes of Doc McStuffins that like we could just go and we knew it was gonna be fun. The doctor was fun. You get a sticker afterwards. It's a great day when we went to the doctor. We are past that point now. That point is no longer a reality for us. Now, here's what happens. It's, it's this, hey, baby, we're going to go to see Dr. Kelly. You've got a checkup today. And her response is this. I don't want to get a shot. (laughs) Well, then we get to the doctor's office and we walk in the door. I don't want to get a shot. Dr. Kelly comes in. Hey, Harper, how are you? I don't want to get a shot. (laughs) Okay. Well, let's just do your checkup first. And they do the checkup and she's looking good. And then Dr. Kelly says, kind of a little bait and switch. Well, that's it except you gotta get a shot. I don't wanna get a shot. I don't wanna get a shot. I don't wanna, I mean, she freaks out. She freaks out. And the problem is she's bigger now. So now I have to take her and sit my not so little girl on my lap and she starts fighting me. And she starts fighting me and I have to grab a hold of her arms and I have to brace her legs down with my other arm and I have to overpower her with my My strength. And it's hard because because this is my little girl. I don't want, my whole job is to protect her from pain. And now I'm the one who's inflicting pain upon her. I'm the reason why she has to get a shot. And she's with tears in her eyes looking at me and and I'm holding, I'm having to restrain her. And she looks at me, she says, daddy, I don't want to get a shot. I don't want to get a shot. I don't want to get a shot. And all the knowledge, all the logic, all the reason that I could share in that moment does not mean a thing to her. Right, They've got that poster of all those dying kids. I point to that. I'm like, listen, the shot is not as bad as you know, dying of lockjaw. Check it out. <laughs> Creepy poster, by the way, for the kid's pediatrician office. It doesn't matter. I don't want to get a shot. I don't want to get a shot. I don't want to get a shot. But the truth is she needs a shot. And listen, don't email me. I'm not making a point about vaccines this morning, Okay. <laughs> See, to God, I think so many of us were just like, I don't want to get a shot. I don't want to get a shot. I don't want to get a shot. But the only way to get you healthy is to get a shot. That's what our text is saying this morning. Trials will come. Consider it all joy. God is good. He's for you. He's not against you. I'm not saying those trials aren't awful. To my six-year-old, there is nothing worse than getting a shot. I'm not saying that your trials are not awful. It might be the most terrible thing you can imagine, but you haven't been forsaken. You can scream and you can cry and you can shake your fists at the heavens. And hear me, I think God can and does handle that very well. Those are good and right responses. That's all okay. But if you are a believer in Christ, if you have genuine faith, then you'll be able to see that he is working for your maturity. He's removing something that might hurt you. He's protecting you from something that might kill you. And he's doing it because he loves you. Maybe today this isn't a theory for you. This is like your reality. Consider it all joys when you meet trials. Maybe today it's not an if for you, it's a when. Right now is the when. Maybe if you're in the midst of a trial, I just the, the, the encouragement from James is don't be deceived. Don't be fooled. Don't be double-minded. Don't think this is because you're poor or you're rich. Don't think it's because God is punishing you for something that you've done. Your flesh is going to incite you. You're going to want to believe that God isn't good anymore because he's given you a shot. But the text ends with, every good and perfect gift is from him. It's from him. This is genuine faith. Let's pray together. Father, we bless you today. We're grateful for this text. We're grateful for this message. We're grateful for the uh, the truth. The the trials will come. The truth that that just because we follow you, this does not exempt us from suffering. God, that's actually a really kind thing for you to tell us in the scriptures because. It verifies everything we've experienced since we started following you. Nobody is exempt from these things. Your very son was not exempt from trials and testing. And yet he was without sin. Lord, help us grow us in maturity in that way. Teach us to believe that that the truth is you're for us. You're not against us. You're with us. You haven't forsaken us and the things that are, that are awful in our lives, Lord, that you are working in them for, for your glory, yes, but also for our ultimate good. Help us to believe these things. When the storms are raging, when the clouds are thick, when it feels like we can't breathe and we can't get out and we don't know what to do, Lord, remind us that you are with us. Even though we walk through the valley, you are with us guiding us, pulling us, guiding us through those storms. Lord, let that change how we practice our faith. Let that change how we engage our trials. And Lord, prepare us for the sufferings that will come, that we might be found faithful in the midst. We love you, Father. We bless you. and We pray these things in the name of Jesus and by the power of the Spirit.